Well, in the science fiction movie, The Matrix, a computer programmer and hacker known as Neo is looking for answers. He feels there's something wrong with the world, and if you've seen the movie, you know he's right. He comes to discover reality as he knows it isn't really reality at all, but an elaborate simulation created by intelligent machines. He meets a group of allies who have been freed from this false reality, and their leader, Morpheus, gives Neo a choice. It's now become one of the most iconic scenes in movie history, where Morpheus holds out to Neo a red pill and a blue pill. Take the blue pill and you return to the world as you knew it before. It's not real, but it's safe and it's comfortable. As Morpheus tells Neo, you wake up in your bed and you can just go back to believing whatever you want to believe. But the red pill. Take the red pill and you're committing to the truth. The red pill means saying goodbye to the comfort of the false world you knew before and waking up to live in the real world with all that that brings. This is a helpful metaphor for the spiritual life. It's human nature to want to see the world in a way we can understand, in a way that we can be happy with. We do the same with God. In our minds and in our hearts, we tend to reduce him to those attributes that we like or understand or can make sense of. But what about when the world doesn't make sense? When terrible suffering comes our way and when God seems to be silent? When things happen in our world or in our lives that challenge our idea of this smaller God, we have a choice. We can insist on staying in this false version of reality and just kind of ignoring the truth around us. We can turn from our faith altogether or our faith can grow as we cling even closer to God. We begin a new series this morning in the book of Job. We tend to think this book is just about suffering, and many of us may be thinking we've had enough of that this past year, so why Job? Job is more about the God revealed through Job's suffering than it is just about suffering. It's a revelation of who God is in a world that doesn't always make sense. A God far beyond our understanding, but still worthy of our praise and our devotion and our complete trust. We've called the series, The God We Need, because whatever we're facing, our lesser ideas of God just won't do in reality. And we don't really need easier circumstances as much as we might like them and hope for them. We don't need answers to our most pressing questions. We just need more of God. Our graphic designer created this image with the idea that no matter how dark or overwhelming things might seem, God is still with us, he'll never forsake us, and he he will never forget his promises. The book of Job is a challenging book because it deals with some of life's toughest questions and most unsettling realities. But reality is where we find God. So let's not settle for the blue pill equivalent of the spiritual life, insisting that Life is something that we can contain and understand and control. So as we begin a new year together, let's enter into this book together, asking God to grow our faith deeper. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we ask your blessing as we begin our study of the book of Job. We ask your spirit to do your work in our hearts that our faith and our dependence on you might grow. And so speak to us from your word in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.
Well, the Victorian writer Thomas Carlyle said that Job is the grandest book ever written with pen. If that's true, then I wonder why in our paper Bibles, at least, the pages of Job are so, still so crisp and untouched. I mean, when's the last time most of us had our morning devotions in the book of Job, right? I mean, it's not exactly the feel-good story of the year, right? Maybe it's that troubling story that we just can't quite know where to place it in our theology. Maybe it's the hard questions the book asks, like, can God really be good and just if he allows such terrible suffering in the world? This book is an honest book. It doesn't present the world like we'd often like it to be, but as it really is. This book doesn't let us be content with a surface-level faith, and so we enter this book together at our own risk. And just like you wouldn't read an email the same way you'd read the newspaper or a school textbook or a novel, it's crucial to know what you're reading when you enter into any book of the Bible. Job is part of the wisdom books. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. These books in the wisdom literature are less about God's specific acts in history, like most of the rest of the Bible, And more about how we live here and now, the everyday living as God's people. If Proverbs looks more at the order of the world, how things usually are, Ecclesiastes and Job look at the world when things don't go according to plan. And it's part of the wisdom book. So Job, this book, certainly calls us to grow in wisdom. But part of the whole point is that our wisdom can only take us so far. In a world we can't always understand, and a God we certainly can't always understand. And this is really hard for many of us who are tempted to think our Bible knowledge and our airtight theology is all we need. No, this book tells us, no, it's not all we need. Job brings us to the limits of our own wisdom, reminds us that true wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And maybe it's the dense poetry That sort of turns us off to this book. Almost the entire book is poetry. You'll see parallelism throughout the book, where the second half of a line will repeat or contrast with the first. Poetry is really something you have to sit with. It's something you have to absorb. It's not just information, but it's emotion. It captures human experience in a way other writing can't. I mean, think about it. Sometimes the best way to say something is with a song or a painting or a poem. Poetry is personal. And Job is a long book, if you haven't noticed that. This is no accident. So the truth that God wants us to see, the truth that God wants to reveal to his people in the book of Job, he chose to communicate it to us in a long book of poetry. We just can't get around that. So that does demand a little patience from us. We can't reduce the book of Job to a few systematic bullet points and say, okay, now I've got down Job. What's next? Now, this book is meant to be read and absorbed, meditated on, and wrestled through. So let's immerse ourselves together in this book. I encourage us all to spend time each week in the book. That will certainly enrich our time as we come together on Sunday mornings. So let's jump in. Uh, Job chapter 1, starting at verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This opening line is straight to the point. We have the place, we have the person. The location of Uz isn't known for sure, but it's probably the land of Edom, somewhere near the land of Edom, to the east of the promised land. 
As for the man, we don't get much uh, historical background. We don't get any sort of genealogy. Just his name, Job. We don't even know if he was a Hebrew. He likely was not. The author seems to be going out of his way to say as little about these kind of details as he can. Because I think the book is meant to be universal. It's meant to speak to universal human experience. But what we do see is Job's character. That we do see very clear. He's blameless, meaning he's complete or whole. Someone who's blameless is above reproach. You can level an accusation at somebody who's blameless, but it just doesn't stick. Because their character, their virtue is known to everyone. He's upright. His being is consistent with his doing. He's consistent in his walk with God and in his life. He fears God, which again the wisdom books tell us is the beginning of wisdom. He has this right respect and reverence for God that guides his decision-making. It guides his heart and his behavior. And that's also stated in the negative. He turns away from evil. None of this means Job was sinless. He wasn't perfect. No one is. But Job is a good man. And the author wants us to get that up front, especially before we move on uh, in the book. There are no skeletons hiding in Job's closet. Okay, The author wants us to know that for sure. Before moving on, nothing in his character could possibly be the cause of what comes next, what comes a bit later in the story. Look at verses 2 and 3. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. So we see God also blessed Job. With great wealth, God blessed him with a large family. He was a pillar in his community. People looked to Job as an example of godliness and also an example of what God's blessing looks like or what it can look like in your life. Verse 4, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one in his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would Rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So Job's family was very close. His sons and daughters spent a lot of time together. And part of Job's faithfulness to God and his family was acting as a priest for them. This gives us another clue to the book's background. Offering sacrifices for his own family certainly places him before the giving of the law and the sacrificial system. Probably lives in the same rough time frame as Abraham and the patriarchs. And that means Job may be the oldest book in the Bible. If not the oldest, it's certainly close. And that speaks, I think, to the importance of this book. If this book was one of the first written bits of revelation from God, then this book has something for us. It speaks also more to Job's character and example. If he's living before the law, he's living separated from the promises given to Abraham. Certainly he has no written word of God. And yet with how little Job knew of God, Job knew God, didn't he? Job worshipped and served God with a faith of incredible depth. May we be spurred on to a growing faith based on all the light we have been given. Faith in the same God Job worship fully revealed in Jesus Christ. 
And I wonder, how does this description of Job match up with our lives? Are, are, are you someone we could call blameless and upright, fearing God and turning from evil? evil? Would that be a fair description of your life and my life? Does a respect and a reverence for God guide our decision-making on an everyday basis? Does it guide how we treat one another? Does your being match your doing? In other words, are you the same believer tomorrow at work as you are right now in the sanctuary? Of course, we're not talking about sinless perfection, just like we aren't with Job. But are we growing? Are we becoming more and more like Jesus? That's the Spirit's job, but we need to put ourselves in the Spirit's path. Time in God's Word, time in prayer, as we were invited this morning and called to worship. Time in community with fellow believers. A new year is a great time to take a new step in your walk with God. And may we see Christ in the pages of this book. As Christians, we believe you can't rightly interpret or understand the Old Testament without Jesus at the center, and this book is no exception. While Job's experiences speak to universal human experience, thankfully our actual experience isn't quite what Job's was, thankfully. As pastor and author Christopher Ash writes, there is something desperately extreme about Job. He foreshadows one man whose greatness exceeded even Job's, whose sufferings took him deeper than Job, and whose perfect obedience to his father was only anticipated in faint outline by Job. Job points us to Christ. Job points us to Christ in both his character and his suffering. As blameless as Job was, he was still a sinner like us in need of a Savior. Only Jesus lived a perfect life. As much as Job suffered, Jesus' suffering was far greater than even Job's, as Jesus gave up his life as a sacrifice for our salvation. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you may be a good moral person, or you may be a person you know your life has been filled with sin. We all stand together in need of a Savior. And as believers, you may be a fairly new believer. You may have been a Christian for decades. But the book of Job calls all of us, wherever we are, to a deepening faith. If we're willing to begin this journey together. So as we start our study over the next several weeks, let's read this book. Let's absorb this book. Let's spend time praying through and wrestling through this book. For this week, let's spend some time in the rest of chapter 1 and on into chapter 2. And as you read, ask yourself, what troubles me as I read this? What's, what's concerning? What are some of the questions that come to my mind? And would you commit to bring that to God in prayer as you study and read this book? But these first five verses are just the beginning. These first five verses are a world we can understand, right? I mean, so far, so good. Here's a guy who loved God. Here's a guy who's blessed by God. He's living a good life. This is something we can understand. This is a world we can live in. This is a world we can make sense of. But some of us, I think, are only willing to really accept the world of Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. There's a whole lot more to reality as we step past verse 5 that confronts us with suffering, confronts us with some very difficult questions. It's a journey out of our comfort zone, but God is there in reality, and we can trust him. 
like Neo in the Matrix, we have a choice in the Christian life. We can pretend God always runs the world we think uh, the way that we think he should. We can be satisfied with that sort of shallow faith that really can't withstand any real storms of life. Or we can worship a God who's much bigger than that. We can worship a God who's big enough to handle our biggest trials. Who's big enough to hear our deepest laments and our most troubling unanswered questions. This is the deepening faith that we need that can withstand whatever life brings. This is the God that we need to cling to. Remember, our greatest need isn't a change of circumstances. As much as we may hope hope that 2021 is better than 2020, we have no guarantees. And that's not our greatest need. Our greatest need isn't even God's blessings like our family, even our health. Our greatest need is more of God. And so let's take that journey together. Let's take that step together and see what God has for us. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we prayed to start our service, we long to be filled with longing for you. Would you help us see the ways you are calling each of us to grow deeper in our walk? Would you help us to see where we're settling for a shallow faith? Would you give us the courage? Give us the courage to follow you out of our comfort zone and the places that you want to grow us, individually and as a church body. Would you guide us as we study this book together in the coming weeks? And grow us together for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.